Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Only very occasionally do I sit across something and think to myself... There's something that's just missing in you. You simply have no chance of engaging properly with the rest of the world. For the very first time, the greatest minds in criminology have come together to dissect the psyches of some of the world's most prolific serial killers. These forensic psychiatrists, psychologists and pathologists have an incredible depth of knowledge and often first-hand insight into these killers, helping us to understand what makes a monster. The following is part two of an interview with Dr Richard Badcock, recorded in August 2019 for Crime and Investigation's TV series Making a Monster. Dr. Badcock currently teaches psychodynamics and psychology profiling at the University of Bradford. With a career that has incorporated some of the UK's most violent and dangerous offenders, Dr. Badcock has helped the police on many major investigations, including Harold Shipman and Robert Black. Warning, the subjects covered in this podcast are of a sensitive nature. Listener discretion advised. I went to Scotland to train in psychiatry, and that's the study of diseases of the, of the brain, diseases of the mind. Um, and uh, while I was there, I was lucky enough to have an attachment in forensic psychiatry and uh, became very interested in that, largely because it brought me into touch with the casual complexity many people's lives and they, it struck me that uh, many of the offenders I was seeing were really wanting to achieve very normal things, very ordinary things, um, but nevertheless found themselves um, using quite sort of bizarre methods to achieve it. Um, and um, I wasn't particularly interested in rape and murder, it was, it was really more the sort of thieves and the frauds and, um, and the drug addicts who seemed to find themselves going into really quite sort of bizarre routes to achieve what most of us would feel were perfectly ordinary things to, to want to have. 
Um, anyway, they, I finished my forensic training in Scotland and uh, got a consultant job in England uh, working in a regional secure unit, which was a network that was just starting up at that time. And while I was there, <clears throat> the police um, asked me to go and talk to them about psychiatry and, uh, and offenders. So I did, and they asked me a lot of questions about uh, uh, profiling, um, which was a new topic uh, then to me and something I knew nothing about. So as a result of that, I went up to uh, a course in Dundee, which was being run by the FBI. And that turned out to be uh, a, a course in which they really couldn't sort of give much of an explanation of how they did what they did. Their, 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 theor their theoretical base was, was really quite weak. But what they did have was uh, a seemingly endless uh, collection of case studies um, illustrated by slides, which showed the full range of destructive behaviour um, carried out by one person on another. And uh, the, it soon um, passed the stage of, of sort of intellectual interest. It, in fact, it was quite sickening. Um, and uh, in the time of feeling sickened, it struck me that this was something that really goes on to a much greater extent than we're normally exposed to, and that it was something that psychiatry should try and do something about, something which I should try and do something about. And so I became interested in trying to develop a method of clinical offender profiling. And that brought me back into contact with the police in various investigations. And then um, it brought me back into contact with uh, offenders such as the ones that you're studying in this series. As a psychiatrist, I'm a doctor. You know, I, I stand in the, in the Hippocratic tradition. The, that's where I get my ethics and my values from. And um, the basis of my knowledge is largely built up through studying cases. Psychologists have, uh, have a very different training. You know, their, their, their training is in um, experimental techniques, in assessing information from studies, um, and in uh, building up patterns of behaviour. So psychology tends to focus on behaviour. Um, psychiatry tends to focus on the mind. In the Hippocratic Canon, written about two and a half thousand years ago, um, there are a number of um, points which translate very readily into the, the profiling environment. Um, because medicine was developed in Greece at a time when knowledge was limited, um, the, the risks were high of getting things wrong. People needed to be able to rely on the doctors to do the right thing by them. Um, so the adaptation became, firstly, to extract the maximum amount of psychological information available from the offence and people who could give me information. Um, the second was to analyse the information um, in accordance with the things which were most important for the investigation to know. In other words, they set the terms of reference and then they would try and uh, understand the case from that, that particular point of view. And then the third and vital thing was um, 
not to make exaggerated claims for the process and to resist uh, arriving at any conclusions where the evidence could not be demonstrated for them. Um, that bit's particularly important in um, psychological profiling uh, because of the risk of bias. It, um, some, from time to time, the, I've been involved in cases and that case has then been televised on Crime Watch or something like that. And in Crime Watch, they do a reconstruction. Um, and the reconstruction really bears that close a resemblance to what actually happened because its purpose is to try and elicit more information from the public. Nevertheless, after <laughs> many Crime Watch episodes, and certainly one or two I'm aware of, people have written in with extremely detailed analyses of who the offender must be on the basis of the Crime Watch um, presentation without any recognition at all that they might be wrong or that they might not have all the information or that, you know, any, any sense that they could be um, sincere but misguided. And that is such an important thing to bear in mind when you're trying to help an investigation. Dr. Badcock's career has included working in numerous medium and high security prisons and interviewing suspects accused of committing serious offences, a process he found himself easily engaged with. My experience is that offenders can't usually, in fact, they can only really very unusually tell me why they've done something. They're, they're much more likely to be able to tell me what they've done. Um, and one of the principles I use in profiling is that if I can find out in detail what happened and how it happened, then I can put those two things together to have an understanding of why things happened. And then I can compare that understanding with what the patient has told me. And then, um, and then I can see where their particular difficulties might lie or where um, there might be need for further, further conversations. When you meet a doctor normally, the consultation is completely confidential. In prison, because I'm seeing somebody for a report, it isn't. So I make, make a point of, of it being very clear at the outset that it's not, a, it's not a conversation that will be kept in confidence because I have to write the report. Um, and that I want them to uh, be as truthful with me as they feel they can. Very occasionally, there are things that they want to talk about, um, but they don't want to go into the report. So I routinely ask people to let me know if that's happening so that we can have a discussion about it before we proceed. On the whole, um, I find people quite willing to try to have an outside understanding of how they've got into the situation that they have. Because um, as I said earlier, they, what I found in, initially in this field of work was that ordinary people get into sort of complicated messes trying to achieve something which in itself is quite understandable and ordinary. Um, but because they've got problems in their image of themselves, their relationships with other people, um, their circumstances in life, um, 
they find themselves going down different paths. And sometimes, often, almost without realising what they're doing. So the uh, people's awareness of the consequences of their actions is often quite limited at the, at the outset. Um, truth in psychiatry is quite a, itself quite, <laughs> quite a sort of complicated thing. I'm interested in their being truthful in their account to themselves. The accounts are often not truthful in the sense that they're objectively accurate, but that's not a problem. They, I want to know how they think about what they've been charged with. And then if I can compare that with what they tell me about what they did and how it happened, I can arrive at my own assessment of why they did what they did. I can compare the two and I can discuss it with them. The most important thing is to be straight with people. You know, they, if you're in prison, um, you know, you, the, the, there's an expectation that you will be deceived or um, somehow uh, worked against in some form. I find it safest to assume that I won't necessarily get the, get the truth. <laughs> That's not a problem. The, uh, as long as the person you know, will give me their account of what they think happened, their account of why they think it happened, and their account of what they did, um, and I can get other information from the investigation about what the physical um, circumstances of the offence were, then I've got a lot of separate ways of looking at things which I can compare with each other and build up a picture. At the end of the day, I'm a doctor. My job is to help. Um, so whether I'm interviewing somebody for <clears throat> on a charge of murder or a, a victim of rape or whatever, the, uh, I always keep in mind that what I'm trying to do is accurately understand them, give that information back to them, um, and then if there's anything that they can use from that to... to help themselves understand why they got into that situation, so much the better. The, I'm not there to gather evidence against them. I'm there to build up a picture of how they got to the point that they have. I've rarely, if ever, come across a case where there is a simple, single explanation. As a doctor, I'm used to um, a scheme of looking at things which starts with starts with birth <laughs> and genetic predisposition, um, looks at early family circumstances, uh, takes account of significant life events in the certainly in the particularly in the formative period when personality is developing, um, takes account of their lifestyle at the time of the offence looks at any particular singular events around the specific moments of, of offence. Because often serial events, serial killings are, are precipitated by something, there's an immediate precipitant. So there's a, there's a, a series which is, has its own pathology, its own driving force. But the events only occur when there's a specific thing happening. Usually a disturbance, an, an annoyance. Um, 
or, or, or a sense that you've been ridiculed or upset in some way. There are many theories about why humans commit unspeakable evil, but none of them are particularly comforting. If the childhood of serial killers are filled with abuse and hardship, then they can appear to be the victims of circumstance. But if murderers have charming upbringings and little to complain about, then could they be born evil? I don't use evil, um, partly because um, it's not my prerogative to, to do it. You know, it's not my call to say what is evil, even though I know evil exists and I see it and, uh, and I recognise it. Um, but evil in the way it's used is mainly, I think, a, a term to try and sort of put a distance between the offender and you. Um, and that seems to me to be understandable but from my point of view of trying to understand and treat people who find themselves in that situation, it's a big mistake. Um, because what we need to examine is what we have in common and how it's changed in the lives of the people who've done these things. People who've scared me, uh, they have mostly been ones in whom there's a there's an active element of mental disorder, which makes them unpredictable. Um, so paranoid psychotic patients who suddenly develop a, a, a fixed stare, you think, oh shit. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not a particularly uh, abrasive psychiatrist, I think. I, I've been attacked four times in my career, each time learning something really useful about human nature and uh, what's involved. Only very occasionally, do I sit across something and think to myself, there's something that's just missing in you. Um, it's, uh, you know, you simply have no chance of engaging properly with the rest of the world. That they're nearly all people who display arrogance. Um, not necessarily overtly, they're not necessarily openly aggressive. I mean, they will have been, you know, up to the point of going to prison or whatever. Um, but they're not necessarily people who try to be intimidating at interview. They're usually much easier to deal with. But they're people who get a sense of a sort of chill reserve. Um, and the chill reserve is an indication that, you know, that their capacity for will has been taken over by something that they've allied themselves to. So they've, uh, and there's usually um, a sense of power. You know, so their be all and end all is power. Um, but then I do remind myself that in the last analysis, evil is quite a trivial thing in relation to good. You know, that the, um, that the dominant force in the world, uh, however it appears on television, <laughs> is good. Evil only exists in opposition to it um, and is not itself a creative power at all. 
This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You know, the thing about human nature is, well, it's part of the ongoing story of mankind, isn't it? You know, <laughs> We've all been collectively thinking about human nature since the since the year dot, um, and uh, you know each each generation sort of builds up a different different way of understanding it. You know our our need in this generation is to understand the patterns of things, including serial homicide, because it may not be a totally new phenomenon, but it is a bit of an explosion, isn't it? Um, and it's one of the ironies of life that, you know, at a time when technologically we're making sort of huge advances um, and everybody's got a smartphone and you don't need to do anything to, you know, to, to, to get the information you want, um, that actually people are more dissatisfied than ever. And that the understanding of what constitutes healthy relationships is kind of being eroded away, um, I think, partly because the, the emphasis now is, is on, uh, well, economically, there's a lot of encouragement of envy, isn't there? You know, they, they, you're encouraged to envy individuals who are sort of picked out as being, you know, the current icons and what have you. Um, and you're encouraged to be individual. Um, and it's important to be an individual, to have an identity. Um, but the focus of human life has always been not so much on individuality, but on belonging. And it's that sense of belonging and interrelatedness with other people which is uh, at risk of being lost sight of, I think. And that 
The, um, somewhere in all that is part of the reason why serial killing has proliferated in the way it has, because the things that make you feel individual also run the risks of turning into things which make you so selfish that you then lose sight of what you're doing and you use other people as commodities and ends rather than their proper status. And once that happens, if you don't correct it, you are up the traditional creek without the helpful paddle. In the next episode of Making a Monster, The Tapes, we have some fascinating interviews with forensic psychologists Dr Eric Cullen and Dr Adrian Needs, investigative psychologist and geographic profiler Dr Sam Ludrigan, and forensic pathologist Dr Richard Shepard. And, of course, Crime and Investigation's Making a Monster, the TV show, continues with a brand new episode every Monday, 9pm. Or you can download the full series to watch on demand. Let us know your thoughts. Tag your tweets with hashtag makingamonster or leave a review on your preferred podcast app and we'll get back to you. You can also head to crimeandinvestigation.co.uk for more info on the series with profiles on all the killers featured. Making a Monster The Tapes features interviews recorded by Monster Films for the Crime and Investigation TV series and was voiced by me, Cherry Healy, produced by Sam Pearson and Chloe Frost, with editing by Joel Porter. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.